Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'd love to have you find your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 10. It is man, so good to be here. Uh, we were gone for a couple of weeks over the holidays, and so uh, it's really good to just see your faces and to be at this place where we get to worship together, to hear you sing. I almost have to catch my breath after that last song. Uh, it's just fantastic. So um, since I haven't been preaching since the beginning of the year, I'm just going to say Happy New Year. I don't know if it's too late to do that or not, but uh, I hope the year is off to a good start. I hope you are living a questionable life uh, in this 2018, uh, which is kind of the theme of our series as we begin the year um, to talk about what it means as disciples of Jesus that we're called to live a questionable life. And I realize that for many of you, you've been living questionable lives your whole life, uh, but this is just sort of turning it uh, a bit to say there's something about the kind of people that Jesus is forming us into that the way we live in the world, it, it sort of gives people this sort of head tilt moment where they look at us and they say, but why would you do that? Why would you, why would you respond that way? Like, what compels you to live this kind of way? Um, and, and what it means for us as disciples of Jesus is that there are going to be some patterns of our life that are different from the way everybody else is living. Uh, when I grew up, I grew up uh, in a religious context where we were told again and again, hey, you're going to be different, you're going to stick out, you're going to be set apart or holy. And the way that worked itself out was by the clothes that we wear, uh, the clothes that we wore, or the clothes we didn't wear. Uh, we wore clothes, we just didn't wear those kinds of clothes. Make sure I'm clear there. That would certainly set a person apart. Um, or, you know, the movies we didn't go to and, and things like that. So there were these, like, these things that set us apart because we, we didn't do them. And that's what it meant to, to live a questionable life. Uh, the problem is I never really had anybody asking me questions about that. Like, it, it wasn't uh, a compelling sort of way of seeing us as followers of Jesus. And so if we're not going to do that, if, if the, the thing, the surface thing that sets us apart or causes questions isn't going to be um, the, the way we look or those kinds of restrictive things, what is it? What is going to set us apart? And, and the, the idea of this series is that it's going to be the rhythms of our life, that Jesus is actually going to form us into the kind of people who live a certain way in the world. And it's going to be different, and it's going to be peculiar. And so um, we've been talking about these five missional habits. Um, and so I, um, that's funny, I don't care who you are, right? This is a hobbit, missional hobbit, missional, never mind. Um, may the hair on your toes never fall out. That's a hobbit blessing for the morning. Uh, but these five missional habits, uh, to bless, to eat, to listen, to learn, and to be sent. And the way uh, that these things work themselves out, it, it comes from this idea uh, from Richard Rohr. And Richard Rohr, uh, he didn't make it up. He, he got it from looking at the life of Jesus. But here's what he says. I, I think it's really helpful. That we don't think ourselves into new ways of living. We live ourselves into new ways of thinking. Let that sink in for a second. We don't, we don't think ourselves into new ways of living, but this is, how, this is how we tend to function in a Western setting. If we want to learn what it means to be disciples, we're going to like gather for Sunday mornings and Eric's going to teach us, or Howard's going to teach us about the word discipleship and what it means, and we're going to look at the disciple practices of the early church, and we're going to do all of that. 
And, and the idea is that somehow by changing our thinking, we're going to change our lives. But what can happen over time is that we just become really informed people about discipleship without ever living discipleship in a different kind of way. Does that make sense? So we, we don't think ourselves into new ways of living. We live ourselves into new ways of thinking. It's act, as we actually begin to put these things into practice that our, our mind begins to change as well. And so there, there are these habits that, that order our lives. Uh, this is what, um, again, just by way of introduction, I think this can, be, this can be helpful to just understand where this is coming from. Our, our vision as a church is to replicate Jesus, being disciples who make disciples, um, to, to let the pattern of Jesus inform the pattern of our lives, to become Jesus-like people in the world. And this has always been what Christians are. People who, who are like Christ in the world. And uh, N.T. Wright, he says it this way. He says, the way we do this, and he calls it virtue. He says, Be, being a disciple or, or, or um, growing in spiritual formation, he calls it virtue. He says, this is how it happens. Virtue is what happens when someone has made a thousand small choices that require effort and concentration to do something which is good and right, but which doesn't come naturally. And then, on the thousand and first time, when it really matters, they find that they do what's required automatically. Virtue is what happens when wise and courageous choices become second nature. And it's more than just sort of psychology here. It's more than just practice. This is what the Spirit of God is doing inside of us. Creating us through our small acts of faithfulness into the kind of people that when we're presented with the moment to do the right thing, it becomes natural to do it. How many of you are familiar with the story of Les Mis, uh, the musical or the book or the movie? How many of you have seen that? Just so I know. So a good, good number of us. Um, so the, the, the book and the musical, Les Mis, both begin introducing us to this character, Jean Valjean. And he, he's a guy who um, had lived in poverty, and he was arrested for stealing a loaf of bread. And he stole a loaf of bread to feed his starving niece his sister's daughter. And he serves five years in debtor's prison for stealing this loaf of bread. But he tries to escape, and so another 14 years is tacked on to his sentence. So 19 years for trying to feed a starving child. And he gets out of prison, but he's a marked man. He has um, this sort of certificate that is going to keep him from being employed. It's going to keep him from being able to move forward in life. He's never going to get to be able to move past his identity as a criminal. And so um, he makes his way to the door of this bishop. And he opens, knocks on the door, and the bishop opens the door and, and invites him in and gives him a warm uh, meal, and gives him a warm bed to sleep in, and just shows him hospitality. But in the middle of the night, <clears throat> he has this, Jean Valjean has this, just this <clears throat> realization of his, just his, his desperation. And so he, um, he does what he knows how to do, and he lives out of his identity as a criminal. He starts to gather up the silver that he'd been eating with, really valuable stuff, and he throws it into a bag, but he had kind of made, made some noise in the kitchen. And so the bishop actually gets up in the middle of the night to see what's going on, and they startle each other, and Jean Valjean attacks him and knocks him down and runs out into the night with the stolen silver. 
So a couple hours later, the police catch up with him, Jean Valjean, this criminal who has this bag of stolen silver. And he gives them the likely story that says, no, the bishop gave it to me. It was a gift. It was a gift. So the police bring him back, um, march him back to the bishop's door. They knock on the door again, and here they are, these police, with Jean Valjean and the stolen silver. And as the bishop opens the door with the black eye, the police say, he told us you gave it to him. And he looks at Jean Valjean and he says, I'm very angry with you. I'm angry with you because you didn't take the candlesticks. Why didn't you take the candlesticks? How could you insult me like this? So the police are dumbfounded. Jean Valjean is dumbfounded. And uh, the police end up leaving. And the two, the, the bishop and Jean Valjean have this interaction. The, the bishop looks at him, tells him, I've just, I've just ransomed your life. Take the silver to start over for yourself, to make a life as an honest man. And he does. And the rest of the, the musical, uh, the rest of the movie goes on to tell about Jean Valjean and how this one interaction changed his life. But here's, here's why I'm telling this story, is because the book, Les Mis, does not start the same place the musical and the movie do. doesn't start with this interaction between the bishop and Jean Valjean. It actually starts with 50 pages of the backstory of the bishop. How did the bishop become the kind of disciple of Jesus who, when confronted with this moment, responded with mercy? How did that happen? Well, the book tells the story. It says the bishop decided, um, first off, to not take a carriage across town. He decided to walk because he wanted to experience his community the way other people experienced it. He wanted to rub shoulders with ordinary people, and he did. And he learned to see the world through their eyes. Uh, It tells a story of the hospital being overrun with people in need. And he, the bishop, decided to give up his whole parsonage, this palace, bishop's residence, to the hospital, and he himself moved into a small room in the hospital so they could use his facility to care for sick and needy people. Uh, it tells the story of him meeting with a, a, a murderer in prison, and uh, this murderer's death, him sort of brokering reconciliation between this man and his victim's family. So here, here's what I want us to understand, is that the reason the book begins with 50 pages in the story of the bishop is because when, when it counted most, in this dramatic moment, when the bishop is standing there with Jean Valjean, he doesn't have to rack his brain to say, what would Jesus do? Right? He doesn't have to consult his bracelet. He doesn't, his mind isn't thinking through indexes of scriptures he has memorized. He has cultivated the kind of life where following Jesus and responding like Jesus was the most natural thing imaginable. And that is the kind of life Jesus is wanting for us. Does that make sense? So this is, this is why these practices are important, because it's the thousand small things that we do intentionally that lead us to respond like Jesus when we need to. So this morning, we're talking about the second practice, and it's the practice of eat. Eat. This is my favorite. Of all the practices, this is my favorite. This is one I'm best at. By far, I've been practicing this for a long time. Um, so here's what I want you to do for a second. Think about your favorite meal of your whole life. Like, if you're going to, like, say, like, this was probably my favorite meal. Don't think about so much what you were eating, but what was the setting like? Your favorite meal experience. Think about that for a second, and then tell it to somebody you're sitting next to. You're allowed to talk in church, so turn and talk to somebody. Tell them this is your favorite meal experience.
Very cool. So, had a second to do that. You can, you can follow up on that even more after the service. But here's what I'm guessing, if I'm going to make a prediction. I'm guessing nobody said it was going through a drive-thru. Like, no, nobody said it was going through a fast food window. Uh, probably nobody said it was eating a TV dinner uh, while watching an episode of whatever, insert show here. And probably nobody said it was eating the, this phenomenal steak or lobster dinner alone on a business trip. I'm guessing that most of us said the meals that stick out to us as our favorite were in some ways surrounded by people or another person, somebody we know and love and trust, and it was just good to share that moment together. We were made to share meals. Um, It is not good for man to eat alone, right? But we have, what is interesting is what we've done is we have individualized the eating experience in our culture. But here's where um, our need betrays us. You can be sitting alone in a restaurant eating a meal and you have this impulse to share your food. So what do you do? You take a picture of it and post it on social media. (laughs) Why? Because we were born to share food and we feel like we have to share it with somebody so we eat alone and then try to share it with the world. We were, this is this this God-given need to share our food. And so as we begin the year, like many of us are thinking like, okay, uh, I need to change my eating habits, um, right? Like we've, we've come through this season of feasting, of like for our family, when our family is together, Christmas and New Year, it's like one long meal. It's like breakfast and second breakfast and elevensies and lunch and dinner and supper. Um, another Hobbit joke, sorry. Um, And so we realize, like, okay, that can't continue, so we need to change our eating habits. But as we're thinking about changing maybe what we eat, let's, as disciples of Jesus, think about how we eat and with whom we eat. This stuff matters to Jesus, how we eat and with whom we eat. So let's take a look in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus was constantly eating meals with people. Matthew chapter 9, in verse 9. Jesus, his whole life was about either enacting or announcing the kingdom of God. The reality, the rule, the reign, the government of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. And if you follow Jesus in the Gospels, what you notice is he's constantly eating with people. And so he, he got this reputation as somebody who eats with tax collectors and sinners. He got a reputation as a drunkard and a glutton because every time he turned around, Jesus was eating with somebody. And he was eating with some shady characters. So Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, so the the first thing they do is have dinner together. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So, Jesus, as a way of enacting the kingdom of God, saying, hey, this is what it looks like when heaven comes to earth. He eats this meal. And he eats it with Matthew and his tax collector and sinner friends. Now imagine Jesus walking, um, walking through the village one day, and he's got his band of disciples behind him, these, these Jewish boys who he's called from, you know, fishing with their father Zebedee, and he's called from their other places in life. And he said, hey, come follow me, and I'm going to teach you what it means to be my disciple. 
And they, they're walking into town one day, and they walk past Matthew in his tax collector's booth. Now, this is not some cushy job at the IRS. This was actually uh, a really sort of scuzzy position to be a tax collector. They were, uh, tax collectors were hated. They were hated, for one, because they enforced Roman taxation laws on the people, on a conquered people. Uh, most people say taxation rates for every person were somewhere over 40% of their income was going to taxes. And so they were hated because they enforced this, this, um, this heavy tax code. They were hated uh, even more because uh, if they were Jews, like Matthew was, they were cooperating with the oppressive power. So they were hated for that. They were hated because they were often dishonest. There were no limits on how much a tax collector could collect on top of the already oppressive number. So they could line their pockets with, from the pockets of other people, their countrymen, brothers and sisters. So they were hated for that. And lastly, they were hated because they were unclean. Um, all of the things that passed through the tax booth that they had to like commodify and tax, many of them were unclean. And so they weren't allowed uh, into the temple or into the synagogue to worship with the people. So tax collectors were, they were hated people. So what ended up happening is people just sort of just put these whole labels, these, this label on whole groups of people to say, ah, those people are tax collectors and sinners. Just to write them all off as worthless. Or tax collectors and Gentiles, that's what those people are, ah, you know, and kind of spit in their direction. Or tax collectors and prostitutes, this was the language. These labels that put on a whole group of people that just tell everybody and tell them that they're worthless. How many of you know we still live in a world where those kinds of labels are put on whole groups of people to tell everybody else that they're worthless? put on whole countries of people, continents of people. So how do those, those kind of people? We, we still live in a world that's no different from this. But as kingdom of God people, that's not who we are. We do not sort of buy into those kinds of labels, to that kind of saying, no, 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 those people and those places, those are worthless. See, Jesus doesn't see Matthew the tax collector. What Jesus sees when he walks past the tax collector's booth is he sees Matthew. He sees a guy with a story. And Jesus looks at him and he says, Matthew, would you follow me? I want you to be my disciple. Now imagine being Matthew for a second. Like imagine you're applying to college and you had a GPA like I did in high school, which you don't want. Um, But you apply to college and um, you, you just send out all these application letters knowing that it's going to be an act of God for you to get in. And so you have been in the rhythm of going to the, going to the mailbox and getting a letter from these universities and realizing you've been rejected. We, we regret to inform you, you're rejected. You're rejected. You're rejected. You're rejected. You're rejected. And there's this one school that you, like, you almost didn't even apply to because it was your dream school. Um, but you, you did. It was like the Ohio State University. Like, if you can imagine <laughs> a place like that. Somebody, somebody coerced you to, to try to apply. And you go to the mailbox one day, and you get the letter, and you're expecting what, more rejection. And lo and behold, it says, you're accepted. We would love to have you come and study here. Can you imagine what Matthew must have felt in that moment? He knows rejection. He knows he's a tax collector. He knows he's lumped in with sinners and prostitutes and all those people. And Jesus looks at him and says, Matthew, you're accepted. 
I want you to come and follow me and to learn from me. So Matthew, like he throws a party, and who does he invite to his party? Of course, he invites his friends. He invites all his tax collector and sinner friends. Um, all those who had been rejected just like him. And what does Jesus do? He just eats with them. He just enjoys the party. He, he has this meal with these people. Now imagine, imagine this setting, right? You've got Jesus, you've got, uh, you've got uh, Peter and James and John, you know, these sons of Zebedee here who've been fishermen. They're good Jewish boys, never ventured out of Galilee. And they're all of a sudden sent across from tax collectors and sinners. And they're probably hearing conversation that they've maybe never heard before around Zebedee's table. Can you imagine, like, sort of what's happening here? And not only that, you have Matthew, the new disciple, who's celebrating with his friends. And across the table, maybe, you have Simon the Zealot. Do you know who Zealots were? They were those people, they were a militia, Jewish militia, who carried swords, these little knives, under their cloaks so that they could ambush Roman soldiers or people they hated more than Roman soldiers, which were tax collectors. And they're all sitting around the table together, having a big happy meal. Now, I've been a part of some awkward meal times, but this is crazy. And Jesus is just kind of saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is, when the kingdom of God breaks in, this is what it's like. So Jesus is living a questionable life. I mean, the, the Pharisees and religious leaders look at him and say, why are you doing this? They ask his disciples, why does your teacher eat with these kinds of people? And Jesus responds, and he quotes this Greek proverb. He says, hey, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. And then he uses this rabbinical tactic, a tactic of rabbis. He says, hey, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus quotes from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What Jesus, I, I think, is saying to these religious people is, is saying, hey, you've built this whole religious system where your idea of purity is not being contaminated by people who are different from you. You're worried about contamination. You're worried about what's going to happen when you associate with those people. And so you've, you've insulated yourself and you've separated yourself. And Jesus says, hey, I, your whole religious system is kind of built on these sacrifices and, and, and restriction. I haven't desired that. What I desire is mercy. Mercy. And Jesus just embodies mercy. Like Jesus, he says, is the physician who has come to heal the sin-sick soul. And in fact, Jesus is the only physician who can heal the sin-sick soul. In Hebrews, like we have these amazing stories, or these passages that say, hey, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 to 7, it says, therefore when Christ came into the world, he said, so this is Jesus speaking, according to the writer of Hebrews, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, speaking to God, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I have come to obey your will, my God. In verse 12, it says, But when the priest had offered, Jesus being the high priest, when he had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus made the whole sacrificial system obsolete. He, he made the whole need to come and have your sins cleansed at the temple through this religious ritual of sacrifice. He made it all redundant. 
because he himself was the sacrifice that took away the sins of the whole world. And so the sacrifices that religious people used to offer, coming and, and giving these things to show God that they were sorry for their sins, Jesus says, like, that's no longer necessary. But do you know the sacrifice that I want? is to live lives of mercy. It's to live a life of mercy. It's to embody mercy. It's to see people who are different from you and to love them the way God loves them. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is an open table where anyone who will come is welcome. Where anyone who will come is welcome. One of the habits that Jesus wants to instill in his disciples was the habit of eating together and not just eating with people who were just like them, not with sort of sequestering themselves off to say, no, no, we're only going to eat with people who, who believe the same things as us. Or we're only going to eat with people who look like us. Or we're only eat with people who act like us, who have the same skin color as us, who, who have the, live in the same sort of socioeconomic sort of um, level as we do. Like, those kinds of things aren't questionable. Everybody associates with people who are like them. It's what human beings do. We look for people who are like us. But Jesus says if the church does that, if what we do is we, we're so concerned with purity that we never associate with those who are different from us, all we're doing is creating a religious reflection of the world. There's nothing questionable about that. But Jesus says the kingdom of God is different. It is different. It is this radically inclusive table fellowship where anyone who will come is welcome. That's what it looks like to embody the kingdom of God. It happens around a meal, around a meal. There are meals all throughout the Bible from Genesis 1 when, when God says, hey, look, this fruit, every seed-bearing plant, I'm giving you for food to sustain your bodies. Um, when God forms his people, when God forms his people, he gives them a meal as their central identity. They used to be slaves in Egypt. God liberated them from slavery. And then how did he sort of solidify it with them? Anybody? Through a meal. A Passover meal. He says, here's the deal. You're going to gather around the table and you're going to break bread together and this is going to be your identity. You're going to be the table people. And so the meal throughout, like the history of the Old Testament, God's people were marked by these feasts and these meals together where they celebrated the goodness of God. But then all of a sudden, somewhere along the way, the idea of a temple came into play. Now, if you read the story, you will find that God never said, David, I want you to build me a temple. Do you know that that verse is not found in the Bible? The temple wasn't God's idea. Uh, the temple was actually David's idea and then Solomon's idea. At best, God is like kind of indifferent to the temple. He goes along with it. But David says, I want to build a temple. And so they do, and they build this temple. And the temple becomes a place where the kingdom of God is most fully realized, most tangible. But the problem with the temple is that you couldn't just go. If you're Matthew, a tax collector, you couldn't just go to the temple. You were cut off. The temple was built on these concentric circles of restricted access. If you're a woman, here's how far you can come. If you're a man, here's how far you can come. If you're a religious man, here's how far you can come. Right? You're a priest. And all the way into the very center, the Holy of Holies, is reserved for one man, the high priest, on one day of the year, a day of atonement. And that's what the temple is. It's these concentric circles of restricted access. And what Jesus does when he's eating meals with people, when he's looking at sinners and he says to them, your sins are forgiven you. Do you know what he's doing? 
He's taking the power of the temple away and he's saying, no, the temple is not the center of God's activity. The table is the center of God's activity. It's like when Jesus is walking around, he says to somebody, he says, your sins are forgiven you. It's like if you were saying today, like, hey, I need to go to the DMV tomorrow and renew my tags. Right? I, need, I need to go do that. And there's a collective groan, like, oh, I know what that's like, right? And somebody in front of you just said, oh, hey, don't worry about it. Here's a little sticker. I just made it. Stick it on your license plate. You're good. No need to go to the DMV, right? And you would think, like, is that legal? Like, do you have the authority to do that? There's a whole system. You go and you wait in line and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and there's all of that. Do you mean we can just bypass that whole thing and you give me the sticker? And this is what Jesus is doing with the temple. He said, no, 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 your sins are forgiven. And they say, wait a second, can you do that? Don't you have to go to the temple? Don't you have to make sacrifices? Don't you have to do this stuff? And, uh, and, and Jesus bypasses the whole thing. He's moving it from this restrictive temple to a radically inclusive table. This is what the kingdom of God is like. So much so that Jesus says, hey, by, by the way, in Matthew 8, he says, you're going to be surprised because many are going to come from the east and from the west, and they will take their place at the feast in heaven with Abraham. When, when Jesus talks about heaven, he says, first of all, you're going to be really surprised who's there. Some who are inside, you think are inside, are probably going to be outside, and some who are outside are probably going to be inside, and it's going to be a feast. Heaven is going to be a feast. Jesus says in Revelation 3, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. Meals are central to life with God, central to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Luke 10, we're not going to talk about it, but you can, you can look at it later. Luke 10, um, verses 1 and 5 to 9. When Jesus sends his disciples out, you know he tells them two times, he says, eat with people. Like here's the de- you're going you're gonna to heal the sick, you're going uh, <clears> to <throat> cast out demons, you're going to do all this stuff. But the central thing is you're going to eat with people. Eat what's set before you. Don't complain about, well, that's not kosher. That is, I don't eat, I, I don't eat that kind of stuff. Just eat what's set before you. And it says, and in doing that, you are going to embody the kingdom of God. And when people ask you, why are you doing this? You just tell them, hey, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Um, so as followers of Jesus, we want um, to live out this kingdom of God coming near table fellowship. And it's not going to happen without intention, right? If, if we don't intentionally take a small step that feels hard and awkward, um, we're not going to actually change our eating habits. And so this week, what we'd like to do as a church is to say, what would happen if we ate three meals differently from what we normally do? We're going to eat 21 meals, some of us more. Some of us are getting some extra credit in. Um, more missional opportunities, but of the 21 meals we're going to eat this week, what if we eat three of them in, um, in a different way? Let's say two of them, we're going to eat with people from the church. Uh, we're going to eat with somebody in our missional community. Maybe it's just getting together for coffee. That's totally cool. Um, so this is not like, again, like a religious checklist or something like that. It's just living lives of intention. We're going to eat with, with two people who are from the church, who are Christ followers, who, who we get to encourage each other and share life with. Uh, we need that. As followers of Jesus, we need a, a missional community. But we're going to eat one meal with somebody who we wouldn't normally eat with, who as far as we know is not a follower of Jesus. 
we're just going to either, uh, we're going to invite them to go for coffee, or we're going to invite them into our home, or something like that, and we're going to put ourselves around the table just to hear their stories, and to ask questions, and to get to know people. Now, this is not a missional, like, strategy to evangelize people. This is not a game to say, ha-ha, you're my uh, tax collector sinner for the week. Um, this is not what that is. Please don't do that. This is a way of obeying Jesus. You can hand out name tags as they come in. Uh, um, this is just a way of obeying Jesus. If this is what Jesus says the kingdom of God is like, it's eating meals with people, we want to obey it, and we want to live it out. And so to be praying, to, to ask the Spirit, um, God, who, who do you want me to invite into my life this week? Um, can I encourage you something? So it's, uh, tomorrow's Martin Luther King Day, right? Would you guys, uh, today at 3 o'clock, there is a community gathering at the Stringer, String, Stringer Fine Art Center at, uh, at the college. Um, and I think this is, an, this is an incredible opportunity for us to put ourselves in a place as a community to say, we want to be in this space and be with minorities in our community. Right? I mean, it's a, it's a great way of just crossing divisions that exist in our community to say, no, 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 we're going to be the kind of people who say, no, the, the kingdom of God it, it looks like a diverse group of people getting together. They're, they're gatherings throughout the week, uh, tomorrow as well. And so this is a, this is a great way uh, to just take one step into this. A couple of, couple of things, just real practically. Um, if, you, if you're going to have people into your home, it doesn't have to be elaborate. I know, like, f- first of all, like, panic buttons start to go off for many of us because, like, people in my home, like, well, are you kidding me? Have you seen our house? Um, there's a difference between entertainment and hospitality. Entertainment is about us and our ability to have, let somebody have a good time. And hospitality is about the other person and just paying attention to them. And so if your first thought is like, oh, no, no, like I need to like clean my house and all the work that's going to go into it and all of that stuff, um, you're, you're in an entertainment mindset. And so just set that aside and say, no, 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 it's hospitality. It's actually just caring about the other person. And you can practice scruffy hospitality, right? I mean, we, our house has been under construction for like a year. We have like baseboard that's missing and some tile that we're replacing. And we just sort of throw a rug over it and invite people to come over anyhow, right? It's scruffy hospitality. So um, if you have little kids, like we, we've started like, just, you put the kids to bed and invite people to come over after the kids are in bed. You can ask people to come over for dessert. And, and so the, the how isn't as important as just the practice of, of starting this. Um, so this is what the kingdom of God is like, and we want to live into it. So let's, let's pray. God, um, very simple. God, this, this simple act of eating that we all need is just sustain life. And we're just so grateful, God, that you have invited us, like Matthew, uh, people who were excluded, people who um, were sinners and outsiders and rejected, and you've invited us to be your disciples. You accepted us before we changed. You accepted us uh, just as we are. And God, your grace has changed us. And so we want to respond uh, we want to, um, to give our lives to you in response. We want to be the kinds of people who cross divisions in our communities, who cross divisions in our families, in our church, and uh, around the world, who enact and who announce that this is what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes near. So God, we trust that this is what your spirit is already doing in us. 
that you want our church to be this kind of uh, radical table fellowship, and you want our lives to, to be this way as well. And so, God, guide us. Pray that you give us wisdom as we um, just respond to who you want us to, to be with this week, to share a meal with this week. And God, I pray that we would recognize your presence in those moments. We pray this in Jesus' name.